I've just been doing a little bit of walking meditation outside and it feels like a big contrast to what I want to speak about tonight because it was just such a lovely atmosphere back there. Yes, it's just such a lovely day today. You know, these small insects, the birds. And I would like to speak tonight about meeting the ecological challenges or the ecological crisis. So I think most people would agree that we live in a time of big challenges, of ecological crisis, of political tensions. And many of us feel how this impacts on us emotionally, how it can bring up feelings of helplessness, of fear, of loss of control. And the question might arise, how can we somehow, somehow hold the enormity of what is happening with our planet without falling into despair? The words spoken by the nun Upachala at the times of the Buddha seem so descriptive of the state of today's world, actually. In a dialogue with Mara, he is like the Buddhist version of the devil, the nun Upachala said those words, All the world is on fire. All the world is burning. All the world is ablaze. All the world is quaking. How does that land with us? And how do we respond to such a statement? And maybe we ask ourselves how and in what way our Dharma practice is relevant to such issues. Ajahn Tanisaro writes, What is the value of all the meditation and mindfulness if we just sit and let the world burn. And indeed, sometimes Dharma practice can seem pretty detached from the real problems of the world, somehow nice and inspiring, but ultimately not very relevant to the realities around us. At times we might even use meditation practice as an excuse not to engage with what is happening around us, in our relationships, in our communities, in our countries, with this planet. At times we might just prefer to withdraw into our small, comfortable niche, into our cocoon, and just forget about all the messy stuff. Sometimes even just reading the news can be so painful and overwhelming that the mind is tempted to slip into denial or numbness or just distracting itself with other things because everything feels like just too much to bear. But you know, this present state of the world, of the planet, is truly about dukkha. It is about the first noble truth of suffering that the Buddha taught. The truth that stress suffering, conflict, are an existential, existential part of our life. And the first step towards liberation, liberating us for freeing us from the suffering is that we learn to acknowledge the dukkha, that we really see it not just in our personal life, but also on a big scale. Is it possible to open up to the difficult, to the suffering, to develop the willingness and the ability to recognize it within us and around us? That's a question. And seeing the suffering, the Buddha taught that we should not just get depressed or fall into resignation, but investigate into the reasons into the causes and conditions that have brought about this crisis. We need to turn towards it rather than run away from the problems. What we find is that ultimately the causes for all the destruction lie in the mind. 
in all those unwholesome forces that Patricia spoke about so beautifully yesterday night. You know, the forces of greed, of aversion, of, of delusion. And once we deeply understand the causes and conditions that lead to the exploitation and pollution of this planet, we also know what can be done to counteract those forces. We can trust that things do not have to be this way. We trust that there is a possibility of ending this suffering, this huge amount of destruction. And this is the third noble truth. There is a possibility to end suffering. And when we end the causes and conditions that lead to suffering, this will lead to the end of suffering. This is really the, the hopeful message of the Dharma. Understanding this clearly, we can walk a path that leads in this direction. We do what we can to bring suffering to an end. And this path is the fourth noble truth uh, that the Buddha taught. So we can understand that Dharma practice is not about getting away from samsara, you know, from the whole mess. But it is about transforming those unwholesome tendencies that are at the root of both our individual and collective suffering. True spirituality is not a way to escape from life, from body, from relationships, from nature, from society, from politics, from the whole mess. But true spirituality is really the art of living in the midst of it. To learn to live in it, to participate in it, but in a skillful way. There is this beautiful image from the Zen tradition, you know, of a lotus flower growing up from the mud. And yes, there is a lot of mud, but still the lotus flower has the power to grow out of it and to flourish in the most beautiful way. It's a beautiful image, yes. So it's really about changing our relationship to the world from a relationship that is very often based on wanting and not wanting to a relationship that is based on love, on care, on compassion, on wisdom, on equanimity and many other wholesome qualities. Seeking freedom or liberation by sealing us off from the world will simply not work. It will not function in the long run. It will only make us very unhappy. Rather, what we need most fundamentally is to learn a new relationship to everything, to our own experience and to the world around us. So tonight I would like to offer some reflections, aware that I cannot do justice to such a topic just in one Dharma talk. And I'm also not pretending that I'm offering a final answer, just a few thoughts. But it is really about this question, how can we find an appropriate response to what is happening? And I would like to begin just by reminding us of some issues which I'm sure are not new to you ecological crisis that we are facing. To have a clear understanding of where we are right now, to see the dukkha is a precondition if we want to act in a skillful way. Certainly one of the greatest threats to us and to all life forms on this planet, on the earth now and in the future, is global warming. Since pre-industrial times, the average global temperature has risen on average by one degree Celsius, which 99% of scientists see as a result of our human activities. So mainly the burning of fossil fuels, uh, such as gasoline, heating oil, natural gas, etc., which have led to an extreme increase of carbon dioxide, 
CO2 and other gases which have the effect of trapping heat in our atmosphere. And never ever in history has CO2 been so high. Even if you go back by 800,000 years, that's a long time, you know, it never has been so high. It is really this famous hockey stick graph. Maybe you, you know that. And it's only in the last hundred years or so that this increase has happened. And even if it might seem, you know, that one degree is not much, we really can say our planet is like in a state of fever. And we see the effects. We see the effect of the warming because this planet is an extremely fine-tuned systems system. We see an increase in hurricanes, in typhoons, droughts, floods, hot summers, etc., which are mostly affecting the poorest people living on this planet, living in the third world countries, but also increasingly affecting our regions. For example, our forests are already suffering from the more frequent heat summers. And here in Switzerland, we can literally watch the glaciers just melting away, which again will have consequences for our rivers, for the lakes, for the whole water system, you know. And through our lifestyle in developed countries, each one of us contributes to this greenhouse effect. Right now, a person living in Switzerland produces 14 tons of carbon dioxide a year, if you include the consumption of imported goods. 14 tons per person per year. But if we would want to bring this down to a sustainable amount, it would have to be 1.6 tons. Isn't that amazing? Such a discrepancy. And compare that, even just one flight from Zurich to New York, I looked it up in the internet, produces 2.3 tons of carbon dioxide. And if you take business, it's even more, it's 4.5. So we are really massively overtaxing the resources. Another huge issue is the mass species extinction. According to a recent UN report, one million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction. So many life forms on land, in the seas, in the sky, are in danger of being completely wiped out, just disappearing irreversibly. It's not just, you know, a few species that are on some red list. It's one million species. So among them is the tuna fish, leopards, tigers, larks, eagles, the blue whale, the orang-utans, the bonobos, the penguins, the turtles. And it just goes on and on and on. If you, if you look at the list, you know, it's... It's just heartbreaking. So what we see, it's, it's really an enormous loss of biodiversity that is going on right now in this moment on this planet. And it has huge impacts on life as a whole on this planet for us because we as humans, of course, we, we depend on this richness of life. Patricia mentioned the extinction of insects that scientists have been warning about recently. And this is something we can see. How often do you still see butterflies or bees, bumblebees, dragonflies? So many insects just disappearing. And they are disappearing in such a gradual silent way that we hardly notice. We don't really notice because it's happening very, very slowly. It's like under our radar, isn't it? So even I, who grew up in a city, you know, 
I can I can see a difference. I feel a difference to how it was like 50 years ago. It's just a difference. And yet we continue to, to destroy so many habitats of plants, of animals, and using just insane amounts of pesticides, of herbicides, etc. The almost insatiable appetite of us humans has led to the clearing of vast forests, especially tropical forests like the Amazon for agriculture. It has led to the overfishing of the oceans, so to the pollution of land, of oceans. And there are so many other issues that I haven't even mentioned here. We are facing a depletion of our natural resources that threatens not only the survival of other species, but also the life of human beings. We are literally sawing off the branch that we are sitting on. And yet so many people are just not aware what's happening. And therefore, they don't care. So the world is out of joint in many ways. And this can really trigger different reactions, feelings, thoughts in us. Perhaps there is a feeling of threat, of grief, of anger, or indifference, cynicism. Basically, we could group the reactions into the three reactivities that we heard about yesterday. Because they are exactly the same mechanism that we see in our mind when we are confronted with our very personal suffering, the three root defilements. One reaction to the destruction is desire or craving. Because we cannot endure the painfulness of the situation, the mind likes to seek distraction in something that is more pleasant. And our consumerist culture is more than happy to cater to our cravings with all the possibilities of shopping, entertainment, food, internet, etc. Just so much material stuff that helps us to forget all the pain and overwhelm. How often do we seek refuge in some pleasant experience in shopping, for instance, instead of reading the latest news about what is going on? The other reaction is aversion. This reaction to what's the suffering with anger or hatred about what is going on, maybe being really angry about those whom we feel are responsible, justified or not. Or among aversion is also the reaction of fear, of pessimism, of helplessness. We become depressed maybe, or we sink into resignation. And the third reaction is the delusion type, the ignor ignorance kind of reaction. It means that we may just become blunt. We just, you know, space out, we shut down, we deny the seriousness of the situation, we repress it, maybe we numb ourselves with the help of medication or alcohol or something. And all this will really be at the expense of our sensitivity. So we often react with those three root defilements. And it is important to be aware of this happening without judging us for this. Just to recognize, yes, this is the reaction of an untrained mind that is simply not able to hold the magnitude of the pain. It is a reaction of such a mind that is in a way reacting in an unguided clumsy way and not knowing a better way of how to deal with this situation. And yet there is an alternative. And I trust that we all, you all, have had moments in your lives where we were able to meet big challenges. 
in a different way, in a more skillful ways. All of us have gone through difficult times and may have experienced times where we were able to embrace the difficult with more wisdom, with more you know, strength, with more compassion. Because I find that when I'm faced with really big challenges, maybe in my very personal life, somehow there is a realization that there is a deeper dimension being touched in this moment. When we really allow ourselves to feel the fear, the pain, the uncertainty, the, sh uh, the helplessness, then all the trivialities simply fall away and we experience an immediacy and nakedness. And in this radical, honest opening to the truth of the moment, sometimes we can discover an inner strength that we weren't aware of before. Something is being unveiled in those moments, an inner resource of courage and clarity. Have you had such moments? In such moments of truth, we feel that we can no longer pretend that everything is just okay. Maybe there is even a sense of an inner duty you know, to somehow rise to the situation and meet it fully, wholeheartedly, courageously, and a deep knowing of what really matters, what is of value and what not. Actually, as practitioners, we find ourselves in a privileged situation. We have understood how suffering is created by the mind. We know that there are ways of ending suffering. We are learning how to create a space in our heart. This is what we are practicing. This is what we have been doing all these days. To acknowledge the suffering when it is there and to stop creating new suffering. And we are so incredibly lucky having found such teachings that can help us to heal those inner and outer conflicts and to create more harmony, both within our own hearts and minds, but also with other beings, with nature, with the animals, with the plants. And from this knowing, from having learned this, there comes a responsibility. We may realize that it's time to bring the light of wisdom, of compassion to the world around us. That, that what we practice in the intimacy of our heart-mind needs also to be shared and manifested. And maybe we sense such an such a urg urgency to work for the good, both within ourselves and in the world. So, such times of threat, times of fear, can actually wake us up from a certain complacency and they can mobilize us to grow, to become stronger. Now, the Buddha spoke about the feeling that is aroused once the mind starts to acknowledge the reality of dukkha, the pain and suffering. And this feeling is some vega. There is not really a, a good translation into English. It is translated as a sense of urgency. Some vega is the feeling that the Prince Siddhartha, the later Buddha, experienced upon meeting the four divine messengers. Venturing out of his luxurious palace uh, as a young man, he came across a person who was very old. Then he saw someone who was very sick. And then he saw a corpse being cremated. And finally, this young future Buddha met an ascetic and he understood that there was a spiritual path that could overcome the suffering that he was witnessing. So 
Siddhartha experienced both a very disturbing reality shock. Wow, there is old age, there is sickness, there is death. But at the same time, he also realized that there was a possibility of addressing the suffering. So, this is some vega. This wholesome reaction of a mind that has been stirred out of complacency. This sense that something ought to happen. Something ought to be done. A sense of urgency and agitation. Samvega is very different from depression or resignation or anger and it shouldn't be confused with those feelings. Rather, it is the inner urge to do something, to get going. Samvega does not collapse in the face of difficulties. It doesn't give up, but it compels us to rise and to seek a way of addressing the problem. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. The sense of urgency draws upon desire and fear, but instead of pushing us to run amok, it instills in us a compelling conviction that we have to do something about our situation, that we have to embark in a new direction, profoundly different from everything we've tried before. While fear over climate disruption often spurs denial and ends in panic or mental paralysis, it may equally well give rise to some vega, a sense of urgency leading to wise decisions to avert the crisis. Everything depends on how we metabolize our fear. I love that. Everything depends on how we metabolize our fear. So when we encounter challenges like the one nowadays, we can really see them as divine messengers, strong reminders of the truth of Dukkha, as a wake-up call. Becoming aware of suffering and this threat, we are called to reflect on our priorities in life and, if necessary, make changes, rather than letting our life be consumed by trivial concerns about the newest iPhone or some fashion trend. We care for that which really matters. So we can choose to act in spite of our fears in spite of our sense of overwhelm, because we care. It's okay and totally understandable to feel fearful, to feel helpless. And yet, some vega, this sense of urgency, is rooted in a deep trust that there is a possibility that things could be different than they are. And it's also rooted in a deep love. Whereas a cynical response to our crisis would just be to say, oh, well, you know, human beings are idiots anyway. This has always been like that, so I will not do anything. Samvega says, even with all my fear, with all my insecurity, I will do what I can because this is important to me because I care. Like Luther, who is said to have said, actually it might just be legendary, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. We do what we can, not because we know for sure that we will succeed, because we don't, but because we know it is the right thing to do. Because we care. It is really the love for beings that helps us to come out of this state of paralysis. Joanna Macy, she is a very famous Buddhist scholar and activist, wrote, If the world is to be healed through human efforts, I am convinced it will be the ordinary people, 
people whose love for this life is even greater than their fear. So the question is whether we are willing, willing to live and act from a commitment to our deepest values, a commitment to love, to wisdom. And actually, if we are, then we are gifted with energy and strength because Samvega is said to be the proximate cause of virya, of energy and perseverance. The feeling of Samvega, this sense that we need to do something about a situation, helps us to mobilize our energy. And that is the reason why Samvega is the basis of true spiritual practice. Samvega can be evoked when we allow ourselves to feel the suffering, to be moved by it, like Siddhartha, rather than just separating ourselves from it, to dissociate from it. It can also be aroused when we feel a deep grief about the state of the world, and still we choose to react in a constructive way. This is from Yanaponi Katera, one who has a clear and direct vision stirred to a sense of urgency by things which are deeply moving, will experience, will experience a release of energy and courage enabling him to break through his timid hesitations and his rigid routine of life and thought. If that sense of urgency is kept alive, it will bestow the earnestness and persistence required for the work of liberation. So, some vega. Huh? And then the question is, how can we now manifest this concretely in our life? And uh, I would like to mention three main areas where I feel each of us can make a difference. I'm sorry, there is some issue with the sound. So the first one is our own practice. The second area are actions that we can engage in, our concrete way of living in this world. And the third area is uh, the aspect of connecting with other people, Sangha. So, developing wisdom and skills. Really, the very first step is that we need to develop our own mind. We need to develop wisdom, compassion, all those wholesome qualities. We need to develop skills if we want to be able to act in a skillful way. Unless we have cultivated some inner foundation, some resources, we will simply not be in a position to help, really, to meet the difficult. And this is what we are doing here on retreat and in our practice at home. We cultivate our resources, our abilities, our ability to look deeper, to understand more deeply, we cultivate our compassion, our love. We learn how to keep our hearts more open to the world, even in the face of the suffering. As it says in a discourse, if one is not tamed oneself and wishes to tame someone else who is untamed, that is impossible. If one is drowning herself, and wishes to rescue someone else who is drowning, that is impossible. Very simple. If we wish to help other beings, if we want to contribute to this world, we first need to be able to help ourselves to a certain degree. I'm not saying that we need to become a fully enlightened being, you know, a Buddha, before we can do anything. Our own practice, <laughs> that would take uh, some time. <laughs> but our own practice can go along with an active engagement in the world. But our own practice is crucial, really, really crucial. 
How often do people neglect their own practice due to a sense of obligation to other beings and they end up frustrated and burnt out because they acted immaturely, lacking the inner stability to, uh, that would have been needed. But to the degree that we have developed an inner strength and steadfastness, a clear understanding, wisdom and a wide loving heart, we can offer those qualities to the world in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. We develop our abilities and then we see where life asks us to bring those qualities forward, to make use of them. We don't know uh, ahead. It could be in unexpected times and circumstances that suddenly we know, oh yes, that's what I have been practicing for. Thich Nhat Hanh once said about the time of the Vietnam War, when the crowded refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person stayed calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone to survive. Just one person can make a huge difference by manifesting and embodying wholesome qualities, like being calm and composed in the midst of confusion and fear. And we can become these people who embody those qualities. If this is our vision, if we want to contribute to the world in good ways, this vision can give us a lot of energy and determination to do our practice, to cultivate the heart qualities of love and compassion, to learn the ability of stilling and calming the mind, to deepen our wisdom that we need to guide us in all our actions. Actually, this, this aspiration to practice for the welfare of all beings is really what bodhicitta is all about. The mind of awakening, an idea that is mostly emphasized in later traditions of Mahayana and Vajrayana. Bodhi meaning uh, awakening and citta meaning mind or heart. So, awakening mind. And bodhicitta means we commit to walk this path of practice in order so that we become able to help other beings also find the end of suffering. It means we commit to cultivating and transforming our own heart-mind in order to grow more capable of helping other beings. And you know, it starts even with small things even just creating a small space of a bit more peace in our own mind already contributes to this world. Don't underestimate that. Yeah. So the second aspect is about acting, living with care. We have seen that the foundation has to be in our own practice. But then we also need to manifest what we have practiced in our actions, in the way we live and make choices. As our wisdom grows, we become more and more aware of how totally interdependent we are with the whole cosmos. How illusory this sense of a separate self is, the sense of being an isolated being that is somehow detached from the rest of the whole universe. <laughs> we become aware of how we constantly interact with and shape the world through our thoughts, our speech and our actions. How we create happiness and suffering through all our intentional actions. We see how everything we do, everything we intend has karmic consequences and how crucial it is that we are more and more mindful of what we think, what we say, what we do.
To the extent that we see this for ourselves, to the extent that we understand that greed, aversion and delusion lead to suffering, not just personal but also planetary suffering, to this extent we become just more sensitive and careful in all our actions. How we communicate, what we consume, how we spend our time. Because we see that it matters. It matters. I matter. Not in the sense of a grandiose self, you know. But I matter in the sense that the choices that I make have implications. Some implications that I might not even be aware of. Sometimes we don't have the full information of what is right or wrong especially in this extremely complex modern world, but we can always try to act from a good intention. This is the key, to always act from a good intention. Tanisa Rash, she's an English teacher, writes in her book, Time to Stand Up, an insight into the living reality of interconnectedness un as insight into the re living reality of interconnectedness unfolds, our practice shifts from a personal goal of transcendence that seeks to leave the world to a fuller transmission that embraces the world from a place of compassion. Actually, the Buddha was a beautiful model of someone who lived with a lot of sensitivity and care for the natural world. Recently, I was very inspired to read Ajahn Suchito's description of how the Buddha and the monastics, the monks and the nuns, lived their life in old India. The Buddha and his community spent most of their life as mendicants living outdoors, often in forests and groves, and so they were very close to nature, to the animals, to the plants. Like so many contemplative and spiritual masters, the Buddha preferred the remoteness of nature to the hustle and bustle of villages and cities. And he often emphasized how important it is that we live our life in the spirit of non-harming, in the spirit of not hurting any being, ahimsa. For instance, he said, by being harmless to all living beings is one called a noble one. Because by living in a way that does no harm to other beings, we cultivate not only our own inner peace, but we also allow other beings to feel safe in our presence. We allow them to relax and to feel at ease. And this alone is a huge gift that each of us can give to other beings. By non-harming, we stop creating suffering. So throughout his life, the Buddha embodied this quality uh, of non-harming. From the, from the discourses, we get a sense of how the Buddha appreciated and cared for the trees, for tree spirits even, for the animals, for plants. Just to give you some examples, I want to read to you an excerpt from Ajahn Suchito's upcoming book, Buddha Nature human nature. His concern wasn't just reserved for those he could instruct. The Buddha's empathy extended to all creatures. At one time, he and some of the bhikkhus were inv invited to spend the rains at Veranja. Having accepted, they were bound to stay there for three months. Even when, as it turned out, there was a famine in the town. The Sangha had to resort to eating such horse bran as the local traders could spare. One disciple suggested turning the earth over in order to extract a rich humus, 
but the Buddha forbade that on the grounds that the small creatures of the earth would be disturbed. It was much the same when a bhikkhu tried to make himself a hut out of river clay. The Buddha ordered him to desist on the grounds that insects living in the clay would be killed when the clay, clay dried out. Furthermore, trees were not to be cut down out of respect for the spirits who dwelt in them. There was even a rule that forbade pouring water with living beings in it onto the ground. So along with the basic samana, that is their wanderer's code of frugality, celibacy and truthfulness, total harmlessness was the norm. Maybe you get a sense of how careful the Buddha was in his actions to avoid hurting or harming other beings, really considering the impact of his actions on other beings. So, of course, if we now come back to our time here and ask the question of what we can do in our lives, it probably wouldn't be such a feasible idea to just go and live under a tree. Rather, we have to find out what we can do in our circumstances. We need to stay grounded and focus on what is in the range of our possibilities. So one big area where we can practice non-harming is the whole issue of consumption to reduce our consumption and to live a more simple life. What kind of food do we eat? Which means of transport do we use? How much water and energy do we use, etc.? To reduce animal produce, eating less meat, eggs, milk products, is one of the most significant contributions that we can make individually. One reason for this is simply to avoid the killing of animals. Right now, globally, we kill approximately 60 billion animals every year. Chicken, cattle, pigs, etc. So that we can eat hamburgers, steaks, etc. We treat those sentient beings as a commodity almost just like objects, not like creatures that too want to be happy, that want to feel safe, like us. Another reason for reducing animal produce is that the production of meat, of eggs, of milk products is responsible for a big proportion of greenhouse gases like methane and that it uses far too much land and water. So we cut down large areas of tropical forests, like the Amazon. We cut thousands and ten thousands of huge old trees that took centuries to grow just to satisfy our greed for some piece of meat, for instance. This is truly a manifestation of delusion, of greed on a collective level. With regard to fossil fuels such as petroleum, gasoline, etc., it is crucial that we reduce the use of cars, of airplanes whenever possible and use bicycles and public transportation instead. A big inspiration for me are teachers like Rob Bebea or Kirsten Kratz, two Dharma teachers from Gaia House, who took a vow quite a few years ago already, probably around 2006, not to fly anymore. And they are still sticking to it. They just have renounced flying. I have to say I am not there yet personally, but I do try to avoid flying as much as possible and have decided not to fly just for personal reasons. So we can go on holiday by train, by bike, by walking even. And in our personal lives, there are still other ways of protecting nature. What about the clothes we wear? 
How many clothes do we actually need and where do we buy them? In this age of fast fashion where many people, it seems, buy and throw away clothes as if they were disposables. Do we care about the people, often even children, in places like Bangladesh, who have to produce these clothes under inhumane conditions? Do we care about the pesticides and the toxic dyes that are being used, polluting the rivers down there, killing the fishes, killing the dolphins? Maybe another possibility We have an opportunity in our garden to plant insect-friendly trees and flowers. Or we can reduce the consumption of plastic. We can use a reusable drinking bottle. We can pick up plastic when we are walking in nature and we find plastic lying around. I don't know whether you have noticed one finds plastic everywhere. When I go hiking, I just see it everywhere because once you start... You cannot stop seeing it anymore. It's like the mind is, you know. So there are endless possibilities how we can make a contribution on a small scale. And this doesn't mean that we end up feeling frustrated or deficient. On the contrary, we might find that to renounce certain superficial pleasures for the sake of something that is more meaningful to us and valuable actually is a source of a lot of joy and contentment. The third area is connecting with others and engaging in our communities and societies. A third important area is the building and strengthening of connections, associations, relationships. There are so many problems that we simply cannot address as individuals, but that can be addressed through national and international organizations, through political action. And, you know, to be together with other people, to be connected with other people who share the same concerns is extremely empowering. Sometimes it's just about being together and sharing the feeling of grief and heartbreak about what is going on. And sometimes it's about going into action together. In a time of social fragmentation and divisiveness, it is so crucial that we remember that we are not isolated individuals. We are members of communities and of a society. We are citizens also. So that we really take care of this aspect of Sangha, of the, the community. We can support online pet petitions. We can support political action. We can donate or even just simply participate in elections and votes. Just one example, for instance, you know, the Sangha around Gaia House, it's this meditation center in Devon, is very, very engaged in terms of ecological issues. And recently, many people from, those, from this Sangha have been engaged in uh, all these um, extinction rebellion actions. I don't know whether you have heard of them in London, yes? So in November and in April, they conducted huge political actions of civil disobedience. And some of the Sangha members were even arrested because they were doing all kinds of things to really bring awareness to the fact of species extinction. And this is just wonderful. They were also meditating in the streets of London, holding up the signs. You know, it's powerful to bring the Dharma to the streets in this way. Or recently, just two weeks ago or so, I read a newspaper article about 200 Tibetan nuns from the Drukpa Kaju lineage who are doing a bicycle tour through Nepal every year for several weeks. Actually, they are on their way right now. And the purpose of their bicycle tour is to fight both for women's rights and for the protection of the environment. 
So they cycle up and down the mountains of Nepal, enduring much hardship. It's quite tough because they never know where they will sleep the next night. And wherever they find a place to stop and to rest, they teach the local people about how to take care of the environment. They teach them about uh, girls' rights for education and things like that. I just find that so inspiring. So these are just two examples. But all over the world, you know, there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of positive initiatives and projects going on, working for the good manifesting care, compassion. And who knows, perhaps a common concern for our planet and the life on this planet will be something that can bring us together as humanity, that we realize that we all share the same concern to be able to live and to flourish on this planet, no matter what political opinion we have or in which country we live. And actually recently I feel like there are positive signs of a shift that seems to be happening. For instance, I read that in Switzerland the greenhouse emissions decreased by 12% between 1990 and 2017. So the efforts of improving the insulation of houses are slowly paying off. Or last year the European Union agreed on a ban of single-use plastics like cutlery, plates and straws. And we are witnessing an awakening of the young generation. Teenagers are taking to the streets to protest for the climate inspired by courageous people like Greta Thunberg. So things can and do change. Nothing is permanent, nothing is fixed. This is the positive side of impermanence. Yeah. So we have seen that as humana humanity we are facing a situation of enormous dukkha, suffering. If we see this situation in the light of the Dharma, the teachings, it is a situation where we are called not to look away and to seek ways of responding wisely. And responding wisely begins with the cultivation of our own heart and mind, with the willingness to address the root causes of all the suffering in our own mind, so that they can be transformed into something wholesome. And then to contribute to this world in various ways, depending on our abilities and circumstances. Because we realized how much we have received from this planet. We realize how nature sustains us, feeds us, clothes us. And we find joy and a sense of deep purpose in offering something back. We realize that truly we are not so separate as we thought, but we are intimately embedded and woven into the great fabric of life. We belong to and we participate in this world and we choose in which way we participate. This is up to us. I would like to close with a quote by Johanna Macy. We have received a, an inestimable gift to be alive in this beautiful self-organizing universe to participate in the dance of life with senses to perceive it, lungs that breathe it, organs that draw nourishment from it, is wonder beyond words. And it is, moreover, an extraordinary privilege to be accorded a human life with self-reflexive consciousness that brings awareness to our own actions and the ability to make choices. It lets us choose to take part in the healing of the world.
So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.